This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week, we have an even darker take on Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. But before we get to random drawings and graduations, I want to remind you that you can enjoy ad-free episodes and help us pay a living wage to everyone who works to bring these stories to you. We lost a couple hundred dollars per month in the Patreon payment fiasco and haven't recovered yet. So if you have the means, please pitch in to help us keep this podcast going. Just go to nightlightpod.com slash legion to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout out on the podcast plus occasional bonus content. You can also make a one-time donation to support us at nightlightpod.com slash donate. And don't forget, Nightlight merch is available and you can support us by sporting Nightlight branded gear. Just go to merch.nightlightpod.com to get your t-shirts, hoodies, notebooks, and more. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy. An attic, a basement. Written by Jared Thompson and narrated by me, Tanya Ransom. Every winter solstice, the neighborhood of Allings Neck holds a lucky draw. We call it lucky, not because there's only one winner, but to remind us of how far we've come. At midday, everyone gathers outside the recreation center for the giveaway. That's when I first meet Janine and Sifiso. Well, Not really meet, more like see their faces from my spot on the stage. From where I'm standing, I can make out Janine's plaited hair and large round eyes, and Sifiso's angular chin. This must be why the Board of Neighborhoods never allows inanimates to see their reflection. There's always a chance an inanimate will start thinking about where they come from and start looking for resemblances in other faces. Though I know Janine and Sifiso aren't my parents' real names, it soothes me to know that there are people out there that might resemble me, That could be my original family. Giving them names is just my way of making them real. It wasn't always like this, you know. In the barracks, we learned about the falling monuments, the race riots, the contests over melanin. I can't tell you about it now. The chairman is giving his solstice address. Welcome, welcome. Now, in its 20th year, the giveaway has become a cornerstone of all neighborhoods. We cannot truly appreciate how far we've come if we don't take a moment to reflect on the ID wars, what it took away, and what it's given. Let's have a moment of silence. The chairman stretches out his arms as a montage of the last 50 years plays on the large screen above us. 
His posture reminds me of an artwork I'd seen in the barracks of a deity who took a human form and let himself be nailed to a tree. They loved showing us this painting. They said all inanimates had the potential to be just as great. The montage on the big screen shows images from the ID wars and recounts events leading to the establishment of the Mixed Marriages Act. Fifty years ago, we embraced our differences more radically than ever before. We reap the benefits now. The video shifts focus to recounting the establishment of the inanimate program and the invention of shadow eating. Now, continues the chairman, let's begin our annual giveaway. Those in the front row who've received a photograph in the mail, please form a line at the bottom of the stage. The chairman bows and the crowd genuflects back. Three boys in the crowd who haven't been listening suddenly turn to the stage and follow suit. Their in-sync movements remind me of Bottle and I in the barracks. Some nights, after lights out, we would sit cross-legged on my bed, with hands behind our backs playing Bottle's favorite game, rock, paper, scissors. As always, your family name will be called and you'll come up, reveal your photograph, and claim your inanimate. Each family with their inanimate will be capped by the chairman and leave the stage, says the secretary from the podium while the chairman takes his seat in his velvet armchair, cradling a black visor. Bottle stands next to me amongst the other inanimates on the stage. I can tell he is nervous even though we aren't allowed to speak. There is nothing to be nervous about, though. Without us, all neighborhoods would collapse and, in my mind, that means we are gods to these animates, even if it means being nailed every now and then. Each family standing in line at the bottom of the stage gets called up and reveals the photograph they were sent in the mail. A tennis racket, a hairbrush, and then a bottle. It hurts to be separated from bottle, but this is what we are trained for. I watch Bottle leave with a young girl and her moms, each wearing shiny bangles on their wrists and daffodils in their brown and black hair. When my photograph is revealed, a bright yellow lemon against a black background, I get handed over to an elderly couple, Arian and Palesa. Arian has high cheekbones and thick eyebrows. Palesa is short and kind of stubby, but her face is smooth. As I stand next to them in front of the chairman, they each take a knee and are capped, temporarily blinded by the black visor. Let darkness free you and live anew, says the chairman. And with that, my giveaway is complete. Before I leave the stage, I search the crowd for Janine and Sifiso. I find their faces in the same spot where I'd left them. Secretly, I hope they recognize themselves in me. Maybe it's naive of me to want this. Inanimates aren't reared for sentimental fancies. Six months into my service and, as stipulated by law, I've seen Bottle six times since our giveaway. We always meet in my bedroom, which is the attic of Arian and Palessa's home. I get moved from the basement to the attic for one week every month. In the attic, I'm waited on hand and foot by my animates. They see to it that every need and desire of mine is met. The attic is furnished with terracotta plush carpeting and newly varnished antique furniture, all bathed in warm light that emanates from silver fixtures that look like vines of poison ivy. The fittings snake across the wall in between photographs of rainforests. Of course, there are some desires that outpace these creature comforts. That's why Bottle is lying next to me on the carpet. You know a place is comfy when you can fall asleep on the floor, even when there's a perfectly good bed, says Bottle. We've woken from our nap. It's late afternoon, and he'll be leaving soon. I've never seen you so riled up like that, I say, recounting our lovemaking, which leapt from the bed to the dressing table, crouched over couch and armchair, and unraveled on the carpet in a glorious uproar. My animates are getting harder to service, 
he says, turning on his stomach and offering me his back for closer inspection. Strokes of upturned flesh stretch across each of his shoulder blades and travel down in long swathes towards his bum. More violent, he says. I tell him it's to be expected. In the barracks, we're taught about the initial shyness between inanimates and animates. But when that passes, animates will give way to their shadows and let us eat them. How can you be so sure the shadow eating works? He asks. I'm stunned that he would ask such a question. I remind him of our training, how statistically the inanimate program brought crime and discrimination down in the neighborhoods, and that despite the Mixed Marriages Act, experts agree that neighborhoods still require outsiders. We are that pressure valve, a release, I say. My talk doesn't reach bottle, so I take his hands and let him feel the burns across my stomach, the rings of seared flesh on my forearms and the parallel scars down my thighs. He traces the scars with his fingertips, but this doesn't change the grave expression on his face. As much as I'm trained to shadow eat, I can't absolve bottle of his doubt. A little while later, we have coffee and blueberry muffins in the king-sized bed. Bottle's been quiet since the carpet, but now he starts telling me about an island off the coast where inanimates have started a commune. He says they refuse to name themselves, that everyone has taken a vow of silence on the island. You know, we aren't allowed to speak of such treason, I say, checking the time. We have an hour left, and this is what he chooses to talk about. He doesn't stop. He goes on about how nothing good ever came from telling people who they could love, let alone legislating people to give up their firstborns. Bottle, the Mixed Marriages Act ended the ID wars. It's been proven. When people have interracial families, neighborhoods become cohesive. Better cohesion equals peace. It's as simple as that. Remember your training, goddammit. We've been through this countless times. We've seen the social studies and the statistical data, but something in Bottle refuses to believe. Aren't you tired of it? Don't you feel shortchanged for being forbidden to see your own reflection or for never growing up with your parents? It's just this wild ride between nightmare and comfort, constantly. He shouts, roused again. My certainty has upset him. He gets up and stands by the window that looks out over the beachfront a few kilometers down the hill, where a large Ferris wheel turns. The torture's only a small part of it. Look around. This attic is better than Arian and Palessa's entire downstairs. All this in exchange for some bruises and bleeding? Isn't it worth it? It gives us time at least together. I say. It doesn't have to be this way, he whispers. Then he gives me a desolate stare, and I can't help but want to caress the scar that runs around his neck. He turns away from me to his bundle of clothes on the carpet and retrieves a creased photo from his jean pocket. It's of his face. You want me to get in trouble, I say. This contraband can get our privileges revoked. Do you ever listen to yourself, Lemon? God! He takes the photograph and places it in my hands. I don't know what he is getting at. He leaves before I have the chance to ask for more explanation, before our time together is up. I have one more week before I get to see Bottle again. The basement is a lot colder than the attic. The only heat comes in the morning through a small square window where a sunbeam lies down and grows across the concrete floor, slowly extending all the way to a metal rack. It is the tail end of winter, the windy month. This morning, it's not the regular cold showers that wake me, but the wind, whose octaves keep climbing the faster it blows against the house. It's not long before Palessa comes down to throw a bucket of ice water on me. Wash yourself, she says. Arian is in a mood. 
She raises her eyes up to the kitchen above us, where a kettle is whistling. From what I've learned, it's a lot easier to shadow eat for adults above 60. The barracks teaches that those who reach a certain age have outlived most of their shadows. Although when it comes to Arian and Palessa, I'm not so sure. Arian likes his shadow eating direct and to the point. It only takes a good scream for him to enter Animalis. Palessa is trickier. She enjoys sauntering along the spectrum of pain and pleasure, building up anticipation in us both. Eventually, when blood is drawn, she'll enter Animalis. The whole point of shadow eating is to help your animate enter Animalis, the state where animates turn their evolutionary tree upside down. It is a volatile process, which is why an inanimate should always be restrained during it in case that same evolutionary tree turns around to snap your neck. At 10 a.m., Arian comes down to the basement and ties me to the rack. A black visor obscures most of Arian's face, except for his mouth. With the kettle in his hand, he pours the water slowly over my exposed shins. For a moment, before the water touches me, I watch it somersault sunlight through its steaming body. At the barracks, inanimates are trained to hold our screens in until it claws itself up through our chests and into our eye sockets. Only then do we let it out. When I finally scream, my eardrums pop a little. Yes, the smell of boiled flesh is stark, but it's only part of the symphony. I wrench on the rack. There's no telling what I'd do to Arian if he let me loose right now. Arian's animalis is subtle at first. I see it coming when he lifts his visor to wipe sweat off his face, licking his lips. He takes out a tiny razor from his pocket, and that's when I know. He spies my flesh like an eagle spotting a rodent in tall grass, eager to swipe it up in its talons. We will continue until he is absolved of his shadows, until he has run the course of his evolutionary tree back to the reptilian age and back again. When we are finished, Arian and I spend the rest of the morning sponging blood into buckets and bandaging my shins. I ask what brought him to the basement today, and he says they've found cancer in his lymph nodes. He hasn't told Palessa yet. Well, I hope you're ready to tell her now, I say, caressing his cheek. I am. Thank you for your service, Lemon. We bow to one another, and he leaves the basement. The rest of the week is uneventful and cold. The smell of the sea comes through the window, and the fuzzy whisper of waves is enough to put me to sleep most nights. Upstairs, the house is quiet. Arian must have told Palessa by now. I expected to be shadow-eating for Palessa before the week was out. But instead, I don't see her for the rest of the week. Rather, it's Arian who wakes me with ice water each morning. On my last night in the basement, I dream about the time I found a piece of mirror in the library at the barracks. It was stuffed between the pages of Alice in Wonderland, at the part where the Queen's gardeners paint white roses red. In the dream, the mirror covers my palm, and when I look at it, I see Bottle and I together. We are happy. I wait for Bottle at the table in the attic. Everything on the table is our favorite. Chocolate croissants, puff pastries stuffed with pancetta and feta, savory muffins and cinnamon pancakes next to a pot of hot Arabica coffee. It's already 9 a.m. He's late. When the door opens at 9.30, it is Palessa on the other side. What is it? It's Bottle. I'm afraid he's been discontinued says Palessa. What? No! Why? He was faulty. Bad manufacturing, apparently. Palessa plays with a flat silver pendant in her hands. So, I suppose you won't be needing all this food? It's for me. I'm gonna eat it. All of it? Yes. 
Suit yourself. She pins the silver pendant to my chest, pricking me in the process. Hey, be careful. Oh, sorry. She grins and leaves the room. I spend the rest of the day stuffing my face and drying my eyes, playing with the pendant, the symbol of an inanimate and mourning. The rest of the week is spent standing by the window where Bottle stood the last time we were together. Down at the beachfront, I'm able to make out a queue of animates lining up for a ride on the Ferris wheel. All day, the queue gets longer and shorter and longer again, over and over. I wish we could have ridden it together, just once. I'm angry at Bottle for leaving me like this. He must have tried to defect, or maybe his shadow eating was too violent, like he said. My Bottle, you were too sensitive for civic service. I've decided to keep Bottle's photograph in my underwear, the only place they wouldn't look for it, I hope. When Palessa comes down to the basement in the evening, she's in a good mood. She hums as she unpacks two chairs and offers me one. Then she restrains my hands and feet with cable ties. You know, Bottle left a letter for you, she says. He did? Can I have it? Not quite. It is contraband. You know the rules. She comes round the back of my chair and grips my throat. We've begun. Her grip grows tighter before she suddenly loosens it, cupping my chin in her hands and kissing me from above. Her lips are soft and wet. I enter Animalis because of them. As we kiss, she bites my top lip and draws blood. It feels like colonies of ants are crawling out of my groin. Then Palessa does something she's not supposed to do. She undoes my restraints and straddles me. It's clear she's an animalist too, as her hands go around my neck and my eyes began to roll in the back of my head. She releases her grip from my throat and I cough. What would I do without you, my lemon? My sweet pressure valve, she says, digging her nails into my forearms. I can feel her shadows enter me, the parts of her that want to rip and be ripped apart. In my mind, I see Bottle, alone, on a gurney, scuttling towards an incinerator. And before I know what I'm doing, I shove Palessa off, reach for Bottle's photograph in my underpants, and stuff it into her mouth. I hold her mouth closed, imagining the ants from my groin crawling onto my hands, keeping them secure and weighted. After her legs stop kicking, I fish Bottle's face from out her throat. I will be incinerated for this. Unless... I go upstairs to find Arian in the bath with his back facing the door. He spots my reflection in the bathroom mirror, but doesn't look surprised to see me. I told her not to tell you about the letter, but she wanted the challenge. Wanted to see what you'd do. So what will you do, Lemon? He asks. Tell me where the letter is. I'm dying, Lemon. I have no need to keep you from it. It's on the counter, in the kitchen. He pauses to stand up and face me, naked. You'll be discontinued for this. You do know that, right? I'm leaving. I'm doing what Bottle wanted for us both. You inanimates really think your precious island exists? Lemon, hope is a powerful thing. Keeps the blood hot. Don't believe fairy tales. Shut up! I slam the door, using a sideboard in the corridor to barricade Arian in the bathroom. Downstairs in the kitchen, I find Bottle's letter on the counter. It's nothing but a pencil outline of my face. I pull up a chair and sit at the table, trying to come up with a plan. That's when I notice Janine and Siphiso's faces on a pamphlet stuck to the fridge. 
The top of the pamphlet reads, Sign our petition and revoke attic rights for all inanimates. Their real names are Nesto and Anne, and they can't be my parents. They just can't be. I could never be related to people who'd want to take my attic rights away. I head back to the kitchen table, my hands tracing Bottle's sketch of me, and that's when I notice that the page has rough etchings on it. Quickly, I get a pencil from Arian's study and shade in the blank spaces. As the banging from upstairs gets louder, my shading uncovers instructions on how to get to the island. It's all been left for me, hidden beneath my face. Bottle instructs me to go through the neighborhood, down past the Ferris wheel, and there I will meet a blind woman, waiting in an alcove. I am to find a beach crab on the shore and offer it to her. Then I must undress and let her feel the scars on my body. Only then, only when she deems me worthy, will she take me to the island. When I go back upstairs to pack, I notice that Arian's banging has stopped. I put my ear to the bathroom door, but hear nothing but weeping. I push the sound out of my mind and focus on Bottle's letter. Later, at the fence of the house, I get the urge to turn back, go inside, wait till the animants come and take me away to the incinerator. Don't I deserve as much for what I've done? Though I know that's not what Bottle would have wanted, I'm scared of leaving everything I've known. Oh, Bottle, without me, no one will remember what you've given, what you meant. With the sketch in my hands, I step across the property line and make my way down to the Ferris wheel. Its neon lights pulse in the night, lighting the dark folds of the ocean that curl and froth, murmuring the need to keep quiet and move swiftly before I'm found out. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy tales in their ears every other week. If you want new stories every week, the only way for that to happen is to join the Nightlight Legion by going to nightlightpod.com legion. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at nightlightpod.com donate. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Written reviews are the best way to help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. You can also rate us if you're in a hurry, or give us a shout-out on your favorite social media at NightlightPod, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ransompodcasts. Audio production for this episode by Jen Zink. Join us next time, and be sure to leave your nightlight on. You never know if your key to freedom is hiding in the dark. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.